You can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. As you turn there, I did realize I forgot to announce that we are restarting our children's catechism. So if you look in your bulletin, uh, there is a short question. Kids, you really got to give me this week. Who made me God? You can memorize that right away. Free candy. Uh, so uh, we're restarting that. So the, the questions will be in the bulletin uh, for our kids 12 and under. And you can come to us, me, Jeremy, or uh, Caleb. We'll rotate and uh, we'll be starting that up. So Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Verses 1 to 5. Let's prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father, I join with Paul this morning and and pray and desire that your people would be encouraged, that their hearts would be knit together, that their minds would be open to see the beauty and the glory and the riches of wisdom and knowledge which are hidden in Christ. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give your people Uh, wisdom as they receive your word spoken, uh, that they would test the things that I say against the truth of your word. Uh, And Lord, if there is impurity or inaccuracy or misapplication, I I pray that they would be able to take what is uh, fallible and and receive what is infallible, uh, all that your word is spoken is. And Lord, I pray that uh, insofar as it does accord with the truth of your word, Uh, what I say, Lord, that they would receive it uh, and submit to it and honor it, uh, that we might better honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you a characteristically encouraged Christian? By encouraged, I don't mean the passing moment of encouragement after receiving a kind word or having an inspiring thought. I mean something more enduring, something more abiding. Is your life characterized by hope-filled confidence in God's good purposes towards you? Is it characterized by a steadiness of joy in the midst of the trials of this life? Is it characterized a goodwill and a generosity towards others, even in the face of their mistreatment? Of you. These, among other things, are what I mean and what I think Paul means when he prays for and is laboring for their encouragement. There is a steadiness, a robustness in the life of the encouraged 
Christian. Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. People who are simply faithful and steady, unwavering in their love for the Lord. They remain faithful. It doesn't matter what kind of hardships they're facing. They're just solid and faithful, constant. I'm sure you've known people like this in the Lord. And it's just always encouraging to be around them. They have a godly perspective on the world and the things that they are encountering. And on the other hand, I'm sure that we've all known Christians who are not quite so steady. They have a genuine love for the Lord, but there is not the same constancy in their faith. They're up and down, in and out, carried and tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And thankfully, the grace of God is sufficient for even the feeblest Christian who is genuinely looking to Christ. Yet it goes without saying that God's will for us is not to be in and out and up and down all the time, but to be steady and unwavering and faithful, consistent in our love for him and for others. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, how do I become like that? How do I become more encouraged as a Christian so that I'm more solid and steady and unwavering in my faith? And the answer that comes from our text this morning is twofold. That the encouraged Christian is, number one, connected in community, and number two, centered on Christ. So if you're taking notes and you want to write that down, or if you're not taking notes and want to memorize the main argument and the two points, it's all right there. The encouraged Christian, the solid Christian, the mature Christian, whatever adjective you would like to use, is number one, connected in community, and number two, centered on Christ. So First, I want to show you why I'm framing the text that way and where those points are coming from. Uh, so Paul, in verse 1, says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. So strictly speaking... This is still part of the model of ministry that we saw at the end of chapter 1. It develops Paul's desire for them as a minister of the gospel, his desire for the people he's ministering to. And he, as an inspired apostle, is saying, this is my earnest desire for you. This is the thing that I'm laboring for. This is the thing that I'm spending and being spent for. And what is it? That your hearts may be encouraged. And this word encourages pretty flexible in Greek. It's a word that you might be familiar with, actually. It's parakaleo. It's, uh, Jesus uses the noun form in John in the upper room discourse to describe the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete. He is the one who parakaleos. And it's translated there as comforter. So this word can mean different things depending on its context. Sometimes it can mean to beg, to implore, to exhort, to uh, encourage, to console, or to comfort. And so given the, the semi-wide range that this word could mean, the context needs to determine the nuance of how it's used here. And given how just in the prior verse, 
In Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So on the front side, Paul says he's struggling, laboring, desiring that they would be mature in Christ. And then at the back end of our passage, he says in 2.6 that he's rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there's a strength and a solidity of their faith that Paul is after in his ministry. So when Paul says that he's struggling, laboring, earnestly desiring that their hearts would be encouraged, it's not just a passing moment of upliftedness. This is an enduring encouragement that lasts. It's the kind of encouragement that renders the believer more mature in Christ. It makes one solid and firm in their faith and imparts strength to run the race that is set before them. And I think that every genuine Christian, no matter how mature you might be, hears that and should say, Yes, please, I will take more encouragement this morning, more strength to run the race, more firmness in my love for the Lord. That's just something we never graduate from. We never stop needing to be encouraged in the Lord and strengthened in Him. So what does that look like? And the question, how does that happen? And that's what this sermon is about. And I think there's two points that come in our text. The first point is that this kind of encouragement happens while connected in community. Let's go back to verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. How? Being knit together in love. So one of the primary ways that abiding encouragement happens in the lives of Christians is by their hearts being knit together in love with one another. Therefore, if you want to be encouraged in Christ, if you want to become more mature in Christ, if you want to become more resilient and firm and steady in your love for the Lord, seek to weave the fabric of your life into the lives of other followers of Christ and into the wider community of faith, such that your faith is not a single strand that is in isolation to the rest of the church and the body of Christ, but it is bound together with the life and the faith and the strength of other believers who can encourage you. And I really don't think that I can sufficiently emphasize the significance of Christian community in the scriptures. If you have eyes to see it, it's everywhere you look. And I I typically try to limit the amount of passages, other passages that I go to, because I personally find that it can be kind of distracting and and kind of derail my, my thought of what I'm trying to communicate from this passage. But I think it might be helpful to just show how pervasive, how ubiquitous it is, and how central it is, uh, community is, to the Christian life. So first, I just want to show the historical pattern and how central it was in the early church. So in Acts 2.42, speaking of early Christians, it says that the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And Acts 4 reiterates the same thing. Uh, Acts 4, I'm not sure the verse says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And before you launch into a treatise about why it's not teaching socialism or not teaching communism, can we just sit and admire the beauty of this community that the Lord had formed in Christ's name? That the Lord had so knitted their hearts together that they were of one heart and soul and they gladly and freely gave of anything that they had to love, for, love and care for one another. And they, it says they devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching and the fellowship. Day by day, learning together, breaking bread in each other's homes with glad and generous hearts. And so we can have an exegetical discussion about what is prescriptive for the church today and what is descriptive of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, but can we just agree that this is a beautiful picture of the church in community And that where the Spirit of the Lord is at work, there is one, the hearts of believers are being united together in love for one another. And number two, that said love is expressed in tangible ways like eating together and providing for one another. And can we agree that this is something to be desired, to be prayed for, to be earnestly sought after in the life of our own church, in our own hearts and lives? But the significance of community is not just a historical pattern that we see in scriptures, but it's also a binding command, one that we know very well is Hebrews 10.24. He says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See how the encouragement of one another is bound together with our meeting together as God's people. So yes, God does speak directly to us through his word. You can be encouraged every day by opening your Bible and reading. Praise the Lord. Read your Bibles. However, God has also ordained that one of the primary ways that his people be encouraged is by other people. God mediates his encouragement through relationships you have with other Christians. And again, biblical encouragement is not merely, I feel down in the dumps today, uh, but now I feel much better. It could be that, but maybe what you need is not so much a little pick-me-up, but to be stirred and up to love and good works to be exhorted. Maybe you are too comfortable and complacent and apathetic about certain aspects of your Christian life, and you need to be encouraged unto some things for the sake of Christian maturity. And you know, God does that through other Christians in our lives. Consider it similarly, Hebrews 3.12. 
He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, parakaleo, same word, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. One of God's appointed safety nets to apostasy in the life of his own people is being exhorted, encouraged by one another. And how long does a Christian need that? He says, as long as it's called today. Why do we need that? So that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. And brothers and sisters, none of us is above that. We, we never get past the point where we are no longer subject to the temptation of sin. But understand that in order for this kind of exhortation to take place that the author of Hebrews is talking about, there must be a relational context. There must be a certain degree of knowledge and relationship and trust that you have with other Christians for them to be able to exhort you, for them to be able to see things in your life that is not quite in accordance with the scriptures. So one of the ways that you can be sure uh, that unbelief in your heart and complacency in your faith will never be exposed by anyone is to simply isolate yourself from other Christians and insulate yourself from Christian community. And when you do that, though, you need to understand that you're cutting out from under yourself a safety net that God has ordained in his love for you, for other people to exhort you so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we all have blind spots. And the thing about blind spots is that you don't see them. And sometimes it requires other people to highlight those. Or simply we, we notice them in the reflection of other people's faith as they walk out and we say, ooh, I'm not doing that. Maybe I ought to be doing that. So that's one kind of encouragement or exhortation that we need. And that only happens in community. But there are other times where we need the kind of supportive encouragement. Because there might be a time in your life where for various reasons, you're simply beginning to break under the pressures you're experiencing. Whether it's financial, relational, or spiritual. And these things happen in this world. But if your heart is knit together with others, the weight of your burden is not going to fall exclusively on you. It actually, the weight of that burden gets distributed upon the hearts of other people that you love and that love you and you're connected to. And that weight gets distributed over your community, over your home fellowship group, over your local church. And they bear one another's burdens and you're cared for and you're carried and supported by people who love you and care for you. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So your capacity to bear up under hardship multiplies as you knit your life and your heart together with other believers who will bear your burdens and walk with you through the trials of this life and vice versa. So sometimes encouragement is corrective. Sometimes it's supportive. 
But all of it is designed by God to be formative in our lives, to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of Christ so that we're more firm, more resilient in our faith and more steady in our love for him. But let's just pretend you say, well, I don't need the encouragement and the support of other people. I'm doing my Christian life on my own and I'm doing fine. And even if that was true, which it's not, because God said so, you would still not be free from the obligation to implicate yourself in the life of others to support and encourage them. And if you think that involving yourself in the life of others is a waste of time because they're weak, they're immature, and it's just not really worth it, then I would simply say you're not reading the Bible. Because Romans 15, 1-2 says, We who are strong have the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. Or Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 14. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And I could just go on and on and on with this. The stronger you are, or the stronger you think you are, the greater your obligation is to encourage the faint-hearted. The more spiritual you are, the greater your responsibility is to love, bear with, and help struggling and immature Christians. Finally, one more passage. Ephesians 4, 1 and following says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What what manner of life is worthy of the glories of the gospel highlighted in Ephesians 1 through 3? All the spiritual blessings that Paul mentions there. Well, he's about to tell you. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of spirit and the bond of peace. peace. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? by patiently bearing with other sinners in humility and gentleness. And as a side note, if unity in community requires humility and patience and forbearance, it implies that it's not always easy. There are times when your pride is going to get offended. There are times when your patience will be tested. Your forbearance will be required as you seek to live in relationship with other sinners. But this is where the the rubber meets the road. Is the gospel real or not? Can the gospel actually teach us to love people who are different than us? Can it teach us to forgive when sinned against? Because according to scripture here in Ephesians 4, it's therein, in that 
moment in the community of the church that in the messiness of church life often where the worth and the worthiness of the gospel is shown. And so you might be able to maintain your Christian orthodoxy outside meaningful community. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're actually living the Christian life because the Christian life, by definition, is communal. It is corporate. And so we cannot divorce these things as if merely maintaining, maintaining a body of orthodoxy is living the Christian life because God intends for the Christian life to be lived in relationship with other people. And to finally come back to our text in Colossians 2, it's here in this community of the church and then individual relationships that you have with other Christians in your church, it's, that's the context for encouragement, for real biblical spirituality. And so I would say, let us pray towards this end, that our hearts would be knitted together in love for one another. Let us pray that home fellowships would be a springboard by which all sorts of other relationships take place in which hearts are bound together and people are encouraged and people bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and walk with each other through the trials and struggles of life. And as one caveat, I would simply say that I know this is not easy. I mean, I had all sorts of ideas about what exactly it was going to look like as we landed in Reading and immediately all the things we were going to be doing. And then, you know, we're, I don't know, 36 weeks pregnant or something, but uh, we're moving into a house and we, we've got to get settled and then we have a baby and, and life gets busy and it becomes hard to do all the things that we would like to do. Uh, and I would say that we have been a little bit more isolated than I would prefer Uh, And on top of that, just like the busyness of life that happens and is hard, I'd say the the deck is kind of stacked against us as Americans. Uh, We live just culturally very private, very personal, and relationally isolated lives, uh, much more so than other cultures. And so we have to consciously fight against our inclination to withdraw and to make everything isolated and personal. in order to fight for a biblical Christian culture that actually invites other people into our lives and invites even other people into the messiness of our lives and the brokenness. And and we're praying for each other and helping one another. Uh, That's beyond just superficial relationships because that's where hearts are actually knit together. Uh, So I know... That's hard. But if nothing else, let us simply observe that this is a good thing, that this is God's way of growth and maturity and encouragement. And let us pray that God would do that work in our church and in the relationships that we already have with other Christians, that they would be deepened and strengthened and matured. So, number one, the encouraged Christian is as we saw, connected in community, but also we see that they are centered upon Christ. It's the second point here. Again, Paul says that he's struggling that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So initially, as I was working through this passage, I was going to emphasize that the encouraged Christian is the one who's growing in knowledge and understanding, because that's the language that Paul uses here, understanding, knowledge, wisdom. But if we're careful in following Paul's train of thought, what he's really emphasizing is being centered upon Christ. It's not just a general knowledge, but it's the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And this knowledge of Christ is what is contrasted against plausible arguments by which Christians are deluded and led astray in various ways. And we need to understand a little bit about what's going on in Colossae at the time. It's clear that there is something that the scholars call incipient Gnosticism. Incipient meaning early or emerging, and Gnosticism, meaning a heretical philosophy that taught salvation came by special gnosis or knowledge. So literally, it just means kind of knowledgeism. It's a way of salvation by special knowledge. And we'll talk more about Gnosticism later on in Colossians, but suffice it for the sake of this passage that there were Gnostic Christians, so-called, And they believe that real Christianity consisted in having a special knowledge given directly from God in a kind of mystical revelation. So if you really want to be spiritual, you need that higher knowledge. You need that secret wisdom. That's where the fullness is. That's where the richness of the true spiritual life is. Yeah, Christ and him crucified might even be a good starting point but there's a true spirituality that's going to go higher with a a secret wisdom. And that's what you really need is this experience. You need this direct revelation from God. And that's what Paul is combating here. He's combating these plausible arguments, stuff that maybe even sounds good. It kind of sounds spiritual or enticing. But Paul says, no, Jesus is not a stepping stone by which you go on to higher things. He is not the first rung on the ladder. No, no, no. There is nothing higher than Jesus. You don't move on to greater or move on to deeper things. It's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. You never move on. You never graduate from the knowledge of Christ. We spend all of our lives And then eternity, plumbing the depths of the knowledge of Christ revealed in the gospel. All the Christian life growing in understanding the answers to questions like, what does it mean that Christ forever existed with God, as God, and yet distinct from God? What does it mean that this eternal God took on human nature and dwelt among us? What does it mean that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered? What does it mean that the Holy One of Israel ate with prostitutes and sinners and washed the feet of unfaithful disciples? 
What does it mean that he walked on water and calmed the seas with a word? What does it mean that Jesus cleansed the temple in anger for zeal for his father's house? What does it mean that he who knew no sin became sin for us? What does it mean that the beloved of the Father suffered under the Father's wrath? What does it mean that death could not hold him? What does it mean that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who believe? What does all of this mean? What does it mean for my life? What does it mean for how I relate to a difficult neighbor or how I think about career advancement? What does it mean for how I think about suffering and affliction in my life? What does it mean for how I think about my own impending death or anything else in life? What we need for life's hardest questions is not five steps to a higher life or the one key to living victoriously. What we need is all of Christ for all of life. Because all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And so when you have people coming around like they were, saying, yeah, 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 I know, Jesus in the gospel. But there's this other thing. And that's what you really need. Paul's saying, no, obviously you don't know. Because it's in him that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And as soon as you begin to think that there is a kind of knowledge or a kind of wisdom that's higher or deeper than the person and work of Christ himself, you are being deluded by plausible arguments. You're being drawn away from the fountain of wisdom to puddles in the dirt. And this can happen in so many ways, virtually limitless ways. Why? Because Satan is crafty. But I'll just mention a couple of examples. So, uh, this happens in some, not all, but some charismatic circles where revelation of Christ in the gospel is supplanted by spiritual encounters and the need for new revelation. And the gospel, in, oftentimes, is assumed. It's not denied, it, but it's just assumed, and it's not treasured. It's not cherished. And Christ himself isn't treasured or cherished. And if other people don't have these same encounters, then they must not be very spiritual because Christ himself isn't sufficient and he's not enough. It happens with eschatology and a hyperfixation and preoccupation on end times issues where again, the gospel is not denied, it's just assumed. But the real place where the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden is being able to match up biblical prophecy with news events and what's going on and, and how it all relates. And this becomes the centerpiece of one's thoughts and affections and all their religious life becomes centered on these issues. And again, if you don't agree with these people just the way that they see it, then you don't understand anything at all because it's not Christ that's the cornerstone and Christ that's the, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, but it's in eschatological issues. I would say oftentimes, it's in the realm of politics. There are plausible arguments that what we must do as the church is win the culture war, wars, get our candidate in office, legislate a biblical morality, and then we will arrive. Then we will win. And it's not that you can't have positions and opinions or be active in the do this domain, 
but you must remember that your social, political, and economic philosophy is not the main thing, nor is it the litmus test for participation in the kingdom of Christ. And if you center your mind and your affections on America, you are going to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And you might say, well, not me. I'm steady as could be. I haven't changed a single article of my convictions in 20 years. I'm not up and down, in and out. Okay, perhaps, but are you steady in your joy when your preferred candidate loses? Are you steady in your gratitude when ungodly legislation is passed? Are you steady in your love for sinners amidst moral decay? Meaning, is your inclination to move towards people of varying sexuality orientations and gender orientations? Is your inclination to move toward them in love with a heart of compassion that sees them as a sinner like you in need of redemption like you? Or is your inclination to move away from them with disgust? That's the difference between the encouraged Christian whose mind is centered upon Christ and the bitter Christian whose mind is centered on a political agenda, who is angry because they feel like their country is being taken from them. They will end up viewing everyone outside of their political tribe as enemies to be conquered rather than as people to be loved. And we know that's not the mind of Christ. That's not the mind of him who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And to be very forthright and blunt, I've met many older Christians, particularly men, who are not characteristically encouraged Christians. They're characteristically grumbly and bitter And there seems to be a constant undercurrent of anger. Why? Because they're more centered on America and conservative values than they are upon Christ. And like I said, this is certainly not the only thing. Satan is crafty. There are lots of ways in which we are drawn away, in big ways or little ways, from being centered upon Christ and the gospel. But perhaps you're listening to this And you're like, well, I don't know. None of this seems applicable to me. None of these examples seem relevant to me. Well, then I I would just say, let this be a, a simple barometer. How often do you consciously rejoice in your salvation? Because you should do that every day. You should do that multiple times a day. You wake up and say, oh, Lord, I was destined for destruction. I was wicked indeed. And you came for me. You saved me out of my darkness, out of my rebellion. You brought me out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. What manner of love is this that I have been loved and adopted and received as a son or a daughter? And I've been redeemed not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And you center your mind upon the love of Christ before you, even before you get out of bed in the morning. And then as you face all the little decisions of life, you bring the character of Christ to bear on how you relate to your spouse, your attitude towards your harsh supervisor, your patience towards willful children. 
as you stay your mind upon Christ, that's where you find encouragement to run the race set before you, to fight the good fight that accords with true wisdom and godliness. And you are buttressed against plausible arguments, which might even sound spiritual or enticing, but will ultimately lead you away from the true source of spiritual strength and encouragement, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. These are the things that make for Christians in good order, as Paul says, whose lives are properly proportioned and prioritized in accordance with biblical values. In summary, we see Paul's earnest desire that their hearts would be encouraged. And that encouragement happens as we are connected in community with one another, as our hearts are knit together in love, and as we keep our minds centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let us check whether the things that we are watching and listening to and meditating upon are promoting a Christ-centeredness in the way that we move through our days, in our thought life. Let us take the command to be connected to community seriously, not merely because we have to, but because it's for our good. It's for our abiding encouragement. And let us pray to bring those together and make Christ-centered communities uh, that we do have fellowship when we encourage one another uh, centered upon who Christ is and what he's done for us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we know that we need encouragement. We need encouragement every day. Uh, but we also see in your word that you've given us means of being encouraged. Uh, help us to not neglect those. Lord, help us to involve ourselves in the lives of others. And we pray that you would uh, grow out of this church relationships uh, that strengthen and fortify each other, uh, that hearts would be knit together in love as we seek to run the race set before us, uh, bind our hearts together around the person and work of Christ. Uh, and Lord, uh, let our hearts and minds be centered upon you. Uh, there are so many things that vie for our attention, that vie for our affections, uh, that perhaps at times seem like plausible arguments, uh, but ultimately they lead us away from the one through whom true encouragement comes. So Lord, let us keep our minds fixed on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.